welcome back to My Little Tonys. Hello, our little Antoinette Perrys. <laughs> <laughs> we are finishing up 1973, and we're finishing up our second round of the Tonys. Yeah. I guess we I already said this last episode, but it's pretty much almost exactly a year since we started the show. I know. And we'll have we'll have a little reflections on it at the end of this episode. So we're wrapping up 1973, as we said. Um, oh, I remembered one thing to, that we didn't talk about last time about the ceremony, which is that they literally had just like a montage of movie musicals. People who need people. If I were a rich man, if I were a wealthy man. Like it really felt like it was put together by someone who had like never seen the Tonys, but, <laughs> but was just like, hey, you guys like musicals, right? It was like the Oscars when they're like, you know what? We like movies. And it's just like a random montage of movies. All right, should we just get into Pippin? Yeah, let's just get into it. Pippin opened October 23rd, 1972, closed June 12th, 1977, after 1,944 performances, booked by Roger O. Herson, with uncredited contributions by Bob Fosse, music and lyrics by Stephen Schwartz, and directed and choreographed by Bob Fosse. And the source material is... The protagonist, Pippin, and his father, Charlemagne, are characters derived from two real-life individuals of the early Middle Ages, though the plot is fictional and presents no historical accuracy regarding either. Which I like when people do that. Me too. Yeah, I think it's a cute way to do it. As told by a traveling troupe of actors led by the cunning and charming leading player, Pippin is the story of a young prince, heir to the throne, who is searching for his own, quote, corner of the sky. Pippin returns from university, certain that he will find a fulfilling purpose in life. As encouraged by the leading player, Pippin dabbles in bloody battle, licentious and lusty sexual entanglements, and savvy political maneuvers, only to discover that true happiness is more complicated than he thought. With infectious tunes by Stephen Schwartz and classic choreography from Bob Fosse, Pippin is both a humorous allegory about growing up and a dark tale of the danger of false appearances and empty promises. Okay, well, do we want to talk about the elephant in the room of Fosse's bad behavior first? Um, or do we do we want to save that for later? This is really the first time we've gotten a real chance to talk about Fosse. So, uh, and this is like the peak of him behaving badly. It's also the first time that we have gotten to talk about Stephen Schwartz. <laughs> That's true. Should we talk about Stephen Schwartz first? Who's just like a innocent little child? Yeah, no. He's it's... like, he is a Pippin figure <laughs> to me. And Fosse is the leading player. <laughs> <laughs> He really is, before we kind of begin this discussion of Pippin, I think it's like worth noting Stephen Schwartz as like a figure and like as someone who has a body of work is, you know, maybe overshadowed by like his successful shows. But can that guy write an earworm? And it's interesting because like, so before this, he wrote Pippin when he was 23. He started in college. Before this, he had already had a mega hit with Godspell. And he won a Grammy. Yes. So he did this. And then this was obviously a big hit, ran for almost 2000 performances. And then between he didn't have a hit on Broadway until Wicked almost, I guess, exactly 30 years later. But in between that, he did win three Oscars. Um, He wrote the lyrics for Pocahontas and The Hunchback of Notre Dame with Alan Menken. And then he wrote the score to Prince of Egypt and 
racked up some Oscars and Oscar noms. So it's not like he was, you know, living in disgrace for 30 years in between, but he did have a string of bad breaks on Broadway. In 1975, he did have The Magic Show, which has a good score, but I think it's pretty much, despite running a long time and being kind of like a family hit at the time, I think has kind of really been forgotten too. Yeah. I know we talked about it a little bit on our episode, but I think um, the reason that it has never been licensed is because then it would have to reveal the secrets to all of the magic tricks. Oh, that's so interesting. (laughs) And it was like, you know, a showcase for this one magician. And he was like, can't do that. (laughs) Those are my tricks. So, yeah. So this started, this started as a college project and it was much more literal than it ended up um, becoming. Even the music was a lot more medieval inspired, I guess, originally. (laughs) Like it didn't have this kind of like rock pop score that it ended up becoming. And actually the idea for the show was brought to Steven Schwartz by a classmate at Carnegie Mellon who eventually had no involvement in the project but still gets a royalty check for coming up with the idea. Nice. And so the actually writing the score for this was what led to him getting an agent and being tapped to do Godspell. What's interesting is that the producer, Stuart Ostro, he ended up picking up this project because he had been trying to get Bob Dylan to write a musical and he, was, and he wasn't successful and he was looking for a show that would, you know, appeal to the youth. I read an interesting passage in a Fosse book, not the big Fosse book, which I do have here, but there's another one called Big Deal, which I actually found more helpful in preparing this section. But so that's by Kevin Winkler. And he talks about how he says it's easy to underestimate the confusion that reigned in the period after Hare arrived in 1968 and began to change the rules for what a Broadway musical might sound like. So I think something that we've noticed in both of these 70s shows that we've covered is how like what a range of musical styles are present in the scores where you have you have like a golden age sounding score you have something like a little night music which is very you know classical pastiche you have this contemporary soft rock but Stephen Schwartz also has the classical training and sort of like the musical theater training to be able to make them work in a musical context mm-hmm. so he was a really important figure during this time according to this book razzle dazzle the battle for broadway he writes that ostro after hearing corner of the sky like was just like this show's gonna be a hit like we need to do it and he was one of bob fossey's poker buddies and he was like hey bob want to direct this so this was a big year for Fosse. He ended up within the span of about a month, he ended up winning he ended up winning the Tony for Best Director, the Oscar for Best Director for Cabaret, and three Emmys for his direction of Liza with a Z. So and I don't think anyone still no one has ever done that, won those three awards in that amount of time. And a Tony for Best Choreography, right? Yes. Yes. All right. We we gotta talk about him. Yeah. <laughs> I guess to kind of start it, Schwartz had been writing Pippin and he and Roger Herson had teamed up and had been working on Pippin and Bob Fosse was introduced into the mix and Herson was like, okay, Steven, like if you agree, it kind of felt like a Beetlejuice situation <laughs> where he's like, or, you know, like the classic Faust, like making a deal with the devil. He's like, you're never going to like for the rest of this project that you're going to be the most miserable you've ever felt. And Steven Schwartz, you know was 24 so he was like well whatever like I just want to work with Bob Fosse but um, I think that as we'll get into um, it ended up being exactly what Herson uh, predicted (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean I've been sort of trying to wrap my mind around how to 
talk about this because I think Fosse has always been, you know, a problematic fave of mine. Like, I think there's no denying his genius. There's no denying his influence on the American musical. But there's also no denying that he was a sexual predator. And I think that Fosse Verdon has really sort of brought that back into the cultural conversation lately. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. It's hard talking about it. Like, I was sort of looking at pieces about people trying to reconcile their love for like Roman Polanski's work or like Woody Allen, but it's not the same because, you know, Bob Fosse has been dead for 30 years. So it's not as, it's not as easy as like, well, I'm not going to go see like whatever movie he comes out with next. I don't know. You know, I don't think anyone really has an easy answer about what to do with the art of people who were kind of monstrous in their personal lives and incorporated that into their art. Yeah. As much as Fosse did. And I think like, you know, the Sam Wasson Fosse book is very well written. And when I originally, I think revisiting it, I like have a different reaction to some of it, like some of the excusing of his behavior than I did when I originally read it, like, you know, seven or eight years ago or whenever it came out. And I have this passage about the way that he treated his dancers. You know, I think the difference between being like a just like your garden variety, like sex addict or lech versus Mm -hmm. being a predator is power. And he definitely had a lot of power. This is from the Sam Wasson book. The extent to which Fosse reused the same dancers, drawing them so consistently into his home life and his nightlife, meant Fosse's productions occasioned more than the standard amount of company intimacy. Adding sex complicated matters enormously, but rarely did it hurt the work. It could hurt a dancer, maybe, but never the dance. It made me nervous, and I did whatever I could to get away, Brown said. He was an old man to me, you know? I was 19 or 20. We were at a party during Pippin, and he kept asking me to come home with him, but I kept saying, I didn't know what to say. I gotta go home and feed my dogs. I kept saying it over and over. He wouldn't let up. Even when Fosse was persistent, his manner could be so childlike that almost all forgave it. I think it's fair to say Bob came on to all of us, dancer Pam Souza said, but it was never to a place that affected us. Some women were flattered. That was Bob being Bob. The net result of Fosse's sexual involvement was mostly positive. Uh, was it? <laughs> <laughs> That many dancers described their Pippin relationships as familial can be attributed to Fosse's urge, creative like the others, to build a strong family of his own. Jennifer Nairn Smith, who was like a sexy ballerina, um, was not (laughs) flattered. (laughs) It's funny because this book and also the Clive Barnes review call her out as being like the hottest one in the show. So Jennifer Nairn Smith, however, was not flattered by Fosse's attention. Before coming to Washington, she'd reluctantly accepted his invitation to dinner, fearing, as many women had before her, that she would lose the job if she didn't put out. I was never attracted to him, she said, but he kept hounding me and hounding me, pushing and pushing. Uh, blah, blah, blah. So when he made his move, Jennifer tried to flee. When he attempted to stop her, she kicked him in the groin. He made such a flagrant example of her shortcomings in rehearsals. Most could guess what had or hadn't gone on the nights before. Fosse would do that. Zero in on a girl. There was always one person that he picked on, Candy Brown said, but that wasn't uncommon. I saw the behavior in other choreographers. One person they yelled at constantly. Naren Smith could take it for a while. A certain amount of punishment was part of the game. She would be in tears sobbing, Rubenstein said, and two hours later they'd be going out to lunch. I think that that's interesting because I think it brings up this point 
of who Bob was casting, because I think that Stephen Schwartz in the biography of him defying gravity, the creative career of Stephen Schwartz from Godspell to Wicked by Carol Dick Weir. Stephen Schwartz was like, I guess he was kind of questioning like Fosse's casting decisions. And, you know, he was being like, oh, no, what we need with this, we need someone who's going to like really serve a look in this scene. And like, you know, Stephen Schwartz is like, I want people who can sing my music well. (laughs) And like, eventually it got to the point where Stephen Schwartz was like, can we please at least have like one or two people who can actually sing well, like in the show? This has nothing to do with like Fosse, like defending Fosse's behavior. But I do think that there was this sort of weird way that his inappropriate relationships and like behaviors towards people like did form this like weird fucked up like (laughs) trauma family (laughs) no totally and um in big deal they talk about how like all of his female dancers he cast were his feminine ideal and a lot of them he met Anne ranking during the process of making the show and she sort of became the model for what kind of dancers he liked and they were all these just like amazons with incredibly long legs but like all of the male dancers kind of looked like him were, like <laughs> sort of tiny and weird you know like, i think that like part of my interest in fossey one stems from his talent but two i think it's like there's just this i would love like a freudian or look like lacanian read of his life because it's so right. you know it's just his i feel like his trauma just is like worn so on his sleeve but and it's interesting interesting looking at all that jazz like which I personally think is a masterpiece and like he seems very self-aware but it's interesting seeing how the reaction on that movie is split where some people are like it's him sort of trying to atone for all of his sins through art and some people are like oh he's just being like a self-indulgent martyr but I thought this quote so this is from a piece that I read to try to wrap my mind around this whole concept from the Paris Review called what do we do with the art of monstrous men by Claire Detterer, and it's mostly about Woody Allen, but I thought this ending was interesting. Hemingway's girlfriend, the writer Martha Gellhorn, didn't think the artist needed to be a monster. She thought that the monster needed to make himself into an artist. A man must be a very great genius to make up for being such a loathsome human being. Well, I guess she would know. She's saying if you're a really awful person, you're driven to greatness in order to compensate the world for all the awful shit you're going to do to it. In a way, this is a feminist revision of all art history, a history she turns with a single acid brilliant line into a morality tale of compensation. So I thought that's kind of an interesting way to look at it. It's actually, yeah, it's so funny that these two got paired up. Like, it seems like the most unlikely of pairings. <laughs> Fosse and, and Schwartz? Yeah. Well, I think Fosse, you know, saw someone he could dominate. Young writer, never done a Broadway show before, and he was, you know, he knew he could just mold it into whatever he wanted it to be. Which I guess he did. (laughs) It's also funny because like in the early days of it, Stephen Schwartz was like, he later described his next musical Pippin as full of bitchy, sarcastic dialogue. James Goldman's play The Lion in Winter was like a really big influence among, I guess, dramatists of his generation. Schwartz recalls the witty and nasty dialogue, the betrayals and court intrigue, the medieval melodrama of it all 
When I first heard the idea of Pippin, it seemed like a cool way to do something like a musical Lion in Winter. But it's just like so funny that what this like goody two shoes like <laughs> imagines as being like witty and bitchy and sarcastic is like <laughs> actually put in the same room as like the devil. Yeah, and Fosse was like, this is going to be about me. Yeah. <laughs> so, something I thought was interesting that I never considered is that in the, the Sam Wasson Fosse book, Stephen Schwartz and Roger Herson talk about how they, Fosse was really trying to control the book writing process and they had this theory that he was trying to sabotage them so that all of the reviews would be like, well, the material sucks, but like Fosse did a great job with it, which is what happened. Yeah, <laughs> he's just going to say that. <laughs> So this is from the Clive Barnes review. It is, I felt, a trite and uninteresting story with aspirations to a seriousness it never for one moment fulfills. It is a commonplace set to rock music, and I must say I found most of the music somewhat characterless. Perhaps it needs to be heard more. I enjoyed Godspell more with repetition, but at first echo, this new score lacked something in style and scope. It is nevertheless consistently tuneful and contains a few rock ballads that could prove memorable. What will certainly be memorable is the staging by Bob Fosse. This is fantastic. It takes a painfully ordinary little show and launches it into space. I think he's right. I think they're like I think the score is super fun, but there's not a ton of substance there other than that. And I would argue that when Steven Schwartz writes a good song, it's an amazing song. But I also think that as a whole, I think that there are definitely moments of this recording that I skip through. I was just going to say that I've had simple joys stuck in my head this whole time we've been preparing. That one's a real earworm. Sweet summer evenings, so full of sound, gaining a lover, gaining a pound. Simple joys have a simple voice that says, take a look around. And wouldn't you rather be a left-handed flea, a crab on a slab at the bottom of the sea, a newt on the root of a banyan tree, than a man who never learns how to be free, not till he's underground. Yeah, no time at all. I've had stuck I've had stuck in my head since I first heard it. Everybody oh, it's time to start. know there are such good songs in it but yeah i guess like in response to the reviews schwartz writes the response to the show was very annoying and hurtful to me because some of the things we got blamed for were things we had no control over they were things that bob fossey did (laughs) yep so he's calling sabotage and i mean they like before the opening fossey was like i had trouble with schwartz we fought all the way He said he'd never work with me again. Let's just say I wouldn't be eager. I think he's very talented, but not as talented as he thinks he is. Ouch. (laughs) I know. Something I thought was interesting. So during the casting process, they really kind of cast a wide net to try to cast people who were outside of the theater sphere. Um, And some of the early, like the names they were batting around early were um, Judy Collins and Carly Simon for Catherine, Bette Midler for Fastrada and Arlo Guthrie for Pippin. Like they were really trying to pull from, you know, the larger pop culture world that didn't really end up happening. But um, so the big, the other uh, sexual (laughs) 
miscreant in the room, Ben Vereen, was. <laughs> so he, um, originally the character of the leading player was more of an old man figure and they couldn't really figure out how to cast it. And he came in and had this, like, you know, young, sexy interpretation of it as this, like, devil on Pippin's shoulder figure. And they were like, that's it. And they totally reconceived the part for him. Um, and started to it the show became like became more focused around him than around Pippin, which um, John Rubenstein was not happy about. So and Ben Vereen ended up winning the Tony. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I I had a speech. As a matter of fact, I have five speeches, but I just want to thank Stu Ostrow and, and Bob Fosse and the cast and the crew and the musicians and all the wonderful people of Pippin that's made this possible. And trivia piece, he and, let's see how to phrase this. So he and Bettina Miller are the only people to win Best Actor and Best Actress Tonys for the same role because they did, you know, gender swapped Mm -hmm. casting for that in the 2013 revival. But yeah, so he also was accused of sexual misconduct. It was a couple of years ago. He was directing a production of Hair, I think in like Florida, and he was really like harassing the young actresses there. Um, And he didn't deny it. He was just like, I was trying to replicate the themes of the musical and like the original environment in which it happened, which I think is like, uh, don't do that. You know, (laughs) that's all I can say. Just don't. Um, I don't really think that's a good excuse. No. And him winning his Tony is like, of really the joy that he has when he gets on stage like i think it really shakes up the whole room (laughs) i know especially with how stuffy and like bad this tony's is (laughs) i know it's like ben vereen we're all rooting for you why do you have to go harass those actresses yeah yikes yeah and i think that you know what you were saying everyone on the creative side schwartz and herson were upset that the leading player kind of became this more central figure than actual pippin and i think at one point john rubenstein was like i'm like the eponymous character in a bob fosse show and i'm not dancing like why (laughs) like please like put me to work Oh, so like this idea of like having these players, I think the idea came from another Bergman film, The Seventh Seal, where at some point in the film, there's like a band of like traveling players, you know, they're not woven into the whole film in the same way that they are in Pippin, but like the idea kind of sprang from that. So I think that between this and a little night music, it's interesting to see like Bergman's influence on, I guess, American intellectual life in the early 70s and also so like him inspiring two of the biggest musicals of the 70s. I know that is I had no idea about that Seven Seal connection, but I think the theater troupe framing device is really um, it's really genius. And like Fosse intentionally, you know, he made it so there was no ensemble, like every single person had their own character, even if they don't really aren't really featured. Also, going back to sort of the, uh, you know, sexually free environment, there are a couple of quotes from the from the Sam Wasson book where someone said there were lots of poppers backstage on Pippin, stagehands handing out PCP um, and someone dropped a lewd in my seven up. Oh, my God. That's so crazy. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think that's how this show and, like, Fosse's shows in general kind of differentiated themselves from what was happening because, like, the chorus girls were much more scantily dressed, like, there was much more overt sexual material. Supposedly, the central, like, the foundational movement in the choreography is the pelvic thrust, Mm -hmm. and you can definitely tell looking at it, like, those pelvises are moving around every axis possible. It's kind of funny, I guess, you know, in this conversation of, like, Broadway trying to get like hep with the times that this manufactured commercialized nicely packaged version of 1960s counterculture that you start seeing appearing but then again like you actually have Fosse who is like the chaotic source of like all of this stuff that it's like well like maybe he's he's the one that invented it (laughs) yeah And, you know, Schwartz hated how sexual it was. And he, the version that you license is not the Fosse version. And actually, I believe they went to court over it because the Australian production, like Schwartz had total control over the book, etc. And there was a whole court case on it where ultimately they ruled against Fosse because he didn't have a real authorship credit. And from then on, he was like... I'm getting I'm getting a credit so that this doesn't happen again, like a credit as a writer. Well, it's actually interesting because after the whole experience with developing the show, Schwartz and Herson tried really hard to defossize the script. And then actually coming back for the 2013 revival, Schwartz was kind of like, well, I, maybe I was kind of wrong. And he actually <laughs> did end up adding in some of the like stuff that he had like initially cut. And I think that like a big source of contention was the ending of the show and then for the 2013 revival they finally figured out the ending which for me feels more satisfying than any of the other endings so like apparently for like a london fringe production they had the show end with the finale that we all know that's on the cast recording but then they had like a younger actor who came out and started like singing a corner of the sky acapella which was like kind of meant to be like now that Pippin's journey is over, there's like a new Pippin and like the cycle continues. And uh, Schwartz made this statement that he's like, I feel like the ending, like this transformed the show. And he's like, and I think that Bob Fosse would have even approved of it. Well, that's easy for him to say. Bob Fosse is dead. Yeah, and had been dead for a very (laughs) long time. (laughs) So Tony Walden ended up beating Boris Aronson for best set design for this show, um, which is cute because he's like, the whole experience of Pippin was such a treat that this seems somehow like cheating. And uh, uh, I, I do receive it very, very gratefully, but I won't be surprised if at midnight it starts rolling back towards Boris Aronson's house. <laughs> but um, I thought this description of like a lot of books reference how the show transforms from like the opening you know, bare stage magic to do to the first set of the castle. Mr. Vereen cups his handkerchief into his knotted fist, makes a few passes until the crumpled cloth disappears, then proceeds to find it again between the cracks in the stage floor, teasing it upward and then upward again until it has blossomed into a regal setting high over his head, a picture book universe made of knotted rope doorways and bright bunting suitable for visiting a king. Like, that sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Just like pulling this castle out of the corner of the stage from a little handkerchief. Yeah, no, that sounds so cool. Um, So, yeah, so they did record it. They did record it with Ben Vereen, but I think, and with some of the original dancers, but I think Ben Vereen is the only principal. Who, yes. While there's been no motion picture adaptation, Pippin was filmed in 1981 as the first major Broadway play produced for the home video market. 
Six cameras filmed three performances of a Hamilton, Ontario production with Fosse's direction and choreography, restaged by original cast member and dance assistant Catherine Davi. The cast <laughs> included Ben Vereen reprising his role as the leading player and several dancers who had appeared in the show during its Broadway run. The film was directed, produced, and edited by David Sheehan, who disregarded Fosse's editing notes and made indiscriminate cuts to fit a two-hour running time. This resulted in confusing internal cuts to musical numbers and a jarring sense of pace, making the production feel alternately rushed and lethargic. This version of Pippin is widely available on DVD, cable television, and the internet, and thus is the one most familiar to the largest audience. The participants disavowed it. Stephen Schwartz called it frenetic and terrible, and Catherine Davi said, It was such a mess, no wonder nobody likes it. It nonetheless captures key Fosse numbers like Magic To Do and the Manson Trio, performed by dancers who had learned them directly from Fosse and his team, features the original designs, and documents the performance of Ben Vereen less than a decade after his creation of the role of the leading player. So supposedly there is the Fosse cut floating around somewhere. I was not able to find it. If anyone has that hookup, please uh, slide into our DMs because I would like to see that. And I guess that kind of brings up this interesting question of after the 2013 revival, the Weinstein company bought the rights for the film and they were planning this like big Fellini-esque way of doing it that was inspired by this Diana Paulus circusy revival. But right after the Weinstein company filed bankruptcy in 2018, Schwartz's lawyer made sure to get back the rights. So, okay. <laughs> well, actually, um, Stuart Ostro had an interesting treatment for a potential film version that never went anywhere. So this is also from Big Deal. Ostro's concept of a boy searching the world over for fulfillment allowed him to maintain the theatrical nature of the show by setting each sequence in a different, instantly recognizable theatrical venue. Magic to Do was envisioned taking place at the Acropolis or Stonehenge. The war sequence would be performed everywhere from the Colosseum of Rome to Bob Hope's Vietnam tours to the stage of the Palace Theater. Pippin's introduction to sex was set in Las Vegas and at Paris's Crazy Horse Saloon. His life with Catherine and Theo would be played out on an Andy Hardy street on a Hollywood soundstage, evoking old movie images. So that sounds cool. I'm I'm interested in that. Yeah, it sounds interesting, but it also sounds kind of like a mess. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but like I would be interested in seeing a really messy film Pippin. Like I think that's kind of the only way you could do it is to take a really big swing. Because it is so theatrical. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about um, thinking of like the adaptation of Wicked, because I feel like both of them kind of suffer from such large book problems that it's like, how could you actually make this into like a narrative film? Well, I feel like Wicked is has less of an issue with that, because even though it does have book problems, it is at least a book musical. And this is more of like a concept that's show. That's true. Well, they did make that movie of Godspell. I know it has it has Victor Garber. It has it, right? Victor Garber wearing suspenders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's all you need. Yeah. So this was I. We've had some discussions about which was it Patty or Andrew Lloyd Webber who claimed that Evita was the first one to do a TV campaign, because the answer is well, it was really 1776, but Pippin was the first one that really made an impact. Well, so I think that Andrew Lloyd Webber, it was in his biography that he mentioned it. I think we've solved it because Stuart Ostro also produced 1776 and he did make a TV commercial for it. But this one was one that like, so basically what they did was Fosse directed a commercial with an excerpt from the Manson Trio. Here's a free minute from Pippin, Broadway's musical comedy sensation directed by Bob Fosse. You can see the other 119 minutes of Pippin live at the Imperial Theater without commercial interruption. 
and that worked like gangbusters. Yeah, it's also funny because in the commercial, he was like, come see Bob Fosse's new show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but uh, something I thought was interesting is that Stuart Ostro was like, it saved the show, but I really regret doing it now because now every show... If you don't have a commercial, you're not seen as like a real um, contender or like a serious show. And it adds so much money to the budget. Like it just makes shows. That's just another thing that makes shows very, very expensive to produce. That's actually interesting. Well, I wonder, I mean, I think that the role of TV has like changed so much from then to now where, yeah, it's actually was interesting because watching something like Fosse Verdon on cable, like so many shows were showing commercials during it but it was mostly stuff you know like mega hits that have been on forever so Mm -hmm. it's like remember us you like us (laughs) you know what i think that like something that i didn't necessarily think about at first but there's a pretty like strong correlation plot wise between this and candide yeah and it's funny that both of them are like two shows that have persisted but like i think are loved for their score and i mean i guess uh pippin is loved for its score and for fossey's contributions to it but i always confused the two of them before i really um got into the nitty-gritty of what makes them different which is a lot but there's also a lot that does make them similar even kind of like the medieval a historical take on like medieval uh, i guess candide isn't necessarily medieval but you know like an a historical take on this kind of Thing rooted in history yeah and speaking of that i really love like i think the costumes are such a an important part of setting the tone and um, patricia ziprot did them she said that her prompt from bob fossey was jesus christ with tennis shoes which <laughs> um i think really is very evocative of what's going on i think that like actually pushing this candide connection a little bit it is interesting because Bernstein's sister was Stephen Schwartz's like longtime agent Mm -hmm. and also like introduced him to Leonard earlier in the decade and Stephen Schwartz like helped Bernstein write the lyrics for Mass also echoing this like his collaboration with Fosse um, like the FBI was really worried that like in the Latin text of Mass that Bernstein was like putting anti-government um (laughs) things into it and they were like really worried that richard nixon was going to come to the opening of this show at lincoln center and be hearing all this stuff in latin that was like anti-america and (laughs) anti-nixon um so it's just like funny to imagine that in two different um cases like young stephen schwartz is like getting mixed up with these like (laughs) larger than life people who um have these like bad boy antics going on and he's just like it's so funny I know he seems like based on what I've seen of him in the documentary from the Wicked season, he's such like a gentle soul. Like, and he almost uh, has kind of like an Eeyore energy <laughs> around him. And you, uh, before we recorded, you made the um, comparison to Jerry Herman, which I think is very accurate. Yeah. It's also funny because like in the part of the biography where he's talking about being a student at Carnegie Mellon, the interviewer like asked him if like people were doing drugs and he was like, oh no, not in my class. That started the (laughs) class below mine. And it's like, it was the 60s. (laughs) Someone dropped a lewd in my 7-Up. I know. Should have called it poppin'. Am I right? (laughs) A little side note um, in an article about Fosse that I thought was funny. So um, in 
the 50s, Fosse was in a movie called Give a Girl a Break, like one of his few movie appearances as a dancer. So it featured um, Bob Fosse, Gower Champion, and Debbie Reynolds. And this season, they're all nominated for Tonys 20 years later. Hell yeah. So I thought, um, so this is also in Big Deal. So talking about, you know, how this show, like, really is in some ways about, you know, Fosse kind of grappling with himself. I thought this was a really... Um, interesting take on that. Pippin provided a fascinating glimpse, however unintentional, into Fosse's inner conflicts. The struggle between Pippin and the leading player gave a preview of the contrast between young Joe Gideon and his older cynical self and all that jazz. The leading player and older Joe are expert purveyors of show business flimflam, never at a loss for a quick line or a big finish. Older Joe ends his life with one final show-stopping musical number, in essence, stepping into the box and setting himself on fire while Pippin turns his back on all that the leading player represents. In Pippin, the young man rejects the glamour and spectacle of show business and death, while in all that jazz, the older man embraces both unconditionally. Pippin, young Joe, leading player, older Joe. These four characters offer an intriguing prism through which to view Fosse's life and art, making Pippin Fosse's most personal show. Oh, that's that's beautiful. Um, And speaking of all that jazz, so something that I think... I don't really know what to make of it. So at this point in his personal life, he had separated from Gwen Verdon. And this is when he started working with Leland Palmer, who plays. And I mean, he did go on to work with Gwen again Mm -hmm. later in Chicago. So it's not like he was done working with her totally. But he has Leland Palmer, who's basically like a Gwen Verdon stand in playing what would be the Gwen Verdon role in this. And then she ends up playing the Gwen Verdon stand in character and all that jazz. So he's like, I need myself. I need me a backup Gwen Verdon. <laughs> yeah. And also Stephen Schwartz was complaining about that too, where he's like, why is like Leland Palmer here doing like a Gwen Verdon impression? Well, something else, uh, if anyone knows the connection, um, because in Twin Peaks, there is a character named Leland Palmer, a male character. Laura Palmer's dad is named Leland Palmer. Is this a reference to Leland Palmer, the actress? Somebody please tell me if David Lynch is a big Pippin fan. Yeah, I don't know. Should we talk about the performance? Yeah. So as we said in the first episode, this was the only show nominated that got to perform. I got chills um, as soon as like the you saw all the hands coming out of the darkness and like the the ooze. It really was like a very stark contrast to what else was going on there. I have a memory of probably being in elementary school and going to see my sister's choir concert. And the chorus sang this song and the musical director described seeing this original production on Broadway while he was introducing the song. And I remember being like eight or nine years old and just in his description of all the glowing hands, like getting chills. (laughs) Wow. Well, I think um, it really it, it really comes through beautifully um, in the performance. And like, you know, I think it speaks to Fosse's talent, both as a theater and as a, a film director, that it is such like a, a haunting image, even even on film. Yeah, no, it is like I can't even the idea behind it um, is so simple. But it's also like the impulse behind it feels like taken from like some medieval like spell book or something you yeah know? <laughs> and i think it really heightens like i mean magic to do is obviously like a very fun and catchy song but like it is a little bit trite if you just look at it at like a lyrical level and i think you know i think the whole thing about pippin is the juxtaposition of this 
darkness, this like sexuality and these kind of um, like sweet songs. Yeah. So another notable casting note (laughs) is that for the role of Pippin's grandmother, Bertha, they cast, they did a little stunt casting, Irene Ryan, who was famous for playing Granny um, on the Beverly Hillbillies. Now I could play lay some aging away and persuade him to play in some cranny. But it's hard to believe I'm being led astray by a man who calls me Granny. She actually uh, ended up having a stroke on stage and dying um, pretty soon after that. And Fosse actually wrote her obituary. Irene loved performing. In Pippin, as those who have seen the show know, she was on stage for only about 10 minutes and stopped the show cold. John Rubenstein was left on stage after her exit, unable to speak his next line until her applause diminished. We had decided on no bows. Irene would always stay in the wings and listen to that applause. Since backstage is somewhat frantic, stagehands, actors, and pieces of scenery hurling about crazily in rather cramped quarters, I suggested to her that it might be safer if after her exit she continued on to her dressing room, thereby eliminating the danger of being pushed or hit by a piece of scenery. You always had the feeling you should protect Irene. She looked me straight in the eye and said, Bobby, I've traveled 3,000 miles, given up a beautiful home in California, left all my dear friends. I really don't have to work anymore. And all just to hear that sound. Please don't ask me to leave the wings until the last person has stopped applauding. And you up there, out. Now let me take this with all by myself, all right? And I'm gonna do it from center stage. Boys? doing what she loved yeah everyone's dropping like flies this season i know Best Musical nominee is kind of an is an anomaly in many ways. Shiz, don't bother me. I can't cope. Which opened on April 19th, 1972, closed on October 27th, 1974, after 1,065 performances. Book, lyrics, and music by Mickey Grant. And it was conceived by Vinette Carroll, directed by Vinette Carroll, and choreographed by George Faison. 
This dynamic mixture of rock, calypso, and ballads utilizes a dozen singer-dancers in 20 numbers. In review format, Don't Bother Me explicates the African-American experience with vibrant song and dance. This musical had a lot of first and onlys because, uh, you know, Mickey Grant and Vinette Carroll, both black women. And so Mickey Grant was the first woman to write the music and lyrics for a score on Broadway, period. Not just the first one to get nominated for Tony, not just the first black woman to write a score, just period. And she's still the only black woman who has a solo Tony nomination for score. Um, She was also the first black woman nominated for Best Book. Vinette Carroll was the first black woman to direct a musical on Broadway and still the only black woman to be nominated for a Tony for Best Direction of a Musical. And for a long time, she was the only black woman nominated for direction in either category until 2016 um, because Liesl Tommy was nominated for Eclipsed. So I think it's like we have a lot of conversations about, you know, diversity on Broadway that are focused around performers because I think, you know, that's who we see. But behind the scenes, things are things still have a long way to go. And Mickey Grant was also in the show. But um, so this was incredibly uh, groundbreaking. Yeah. And also was a pretty was a pretty big success. Yeah. And I think the only thing that really was working against it at the Tonys was that it was a review and not a book musical which um, always sort of have an uphill battle. And I think, you know, in a lot of the books I looked at, it is kind of seen as a footnote in theater history for that reason. And I didn't really know anything about it. I had missed Encore's Off Center did it a couple of years ago, maybe even only last year. I really regret missing it now. Yeah. And the music is so good. (laughs) Yeah. So Vinette Carroll um, has a really interesting background. So she um, actually started, she has a master's degree in psychology from NYU, and she started to study I'm assuming for her doctorate at Columbia and then she was like I want to act so then she went to the new school and studied under Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler and then um, in 1967 she founded the Urban Arts Corps um, in New York City aimed at addressing the cultural needs of the Harlem and Bedford-Stuyvesant communities and I believe this is from her obituary she has a quote where she said I've had a great deal of hurt in the theater both as a Negro and as a woman but I don't get immobilized by it So Urban Arts Corps is where this show started, I believe. And then it sort of, it grew and grew and grew into different venues and eventually found its way to Broadway. Um, In this book, Our Musicals Ourselves, the author John Bush Jones kind of like makes this note about it, saying that the tone of it was friendly, congenial, and appealing. One critic actually called the show a very upbeat commercial for Black Dignity. Um, and like I think that this was kind of being said in comparison to quote angry black musicals which in response to that Grant said I believe that there is room for all kinds of theater it doesn't have to be one or the other there's room for angry black theater but there's room for a show like ours a show that has pride and dignity and music that is indigenous to our background the show is us and we hope we are communicating to everyone. We are not doing this show to be separate. There's another quote from her from the art from an article about the Encore's production that's sort of along those same lines. Miss Grant said the warmth of the material suited her natural temperament, but was also a tactical move on her part. There was a lot of angry theater out there at the time, especially in the black community. Bullins, Jones, she said, referring to such incendiary playwrights as Ed Bullins and Leroy Jones, who later became known as Amiri Baraka. 
I wanted to come at it with a soft fist. I wanted to open eyes, but not turn eyes away. Ms. Grant can still quote a letter she received decades ago from an audience member. It made me bleed, but the incision was so clean. I really had that in mind while I was listening here. And it kind of reminds me, and maybe this is not a good comparison, but like, you know, I think like talking about the civil rights movement and sort of like the dueling tactics of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, how like they were both necessary to achieve social change. Oh, totally. Yeah. And like, I think that listening to it, you see it all, you feel it all. And it is, you know, like, I think calling it gentle is like kind of does it a disservice because it is incredibly direct about what it is trying to communicate politically. And it, it doesn't really pull punches. And I'm glad that, you know, the Tonys embraced it to the extent that it did. Something that I liked is that um, sort of looking at reviews of subsequent productions, like people have mentioned that that they've updated the material somewhat to include more topical references because it is very, very 70s. But like there was a 2016 revival in the D.C. area where they referenced, you know, uh, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and, you know, mass shootings and um, Black Lives Matter. And in the 2018 encores, they added references to Trayvon Martin, um, and they said Roseanne instead of Archie Bunker. <laughs> and they talked about Obama. So I think it's one of those things where it's like, even though the specific cultural references are very dated now, it's so easy. Like the overall sentiment is really timeless, you know, unfortunately. Uh, like there has not been a ton of social progress since the show came out in terms of racial justice in this country. So it's like, all you really need to do is change the names. Um, yeah, but I mean, I think this is a great score. I'm very... Uh, I'm happy that it got Tony attention. I love that. Um, so Mickey Grant is in it, obviously, but she doesn't show up until act two, which I think is such a baller move to just be like, I'm just going to chill for the first half and then I'm going to come out and sing my songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what would you have wanted them to perform? So I think I've kind of been going back and forth about what it should have been, about what songs should have been. But I think it probably should have started with I Gotta Keep Moving, which was the opening number. I've gotta keep moving. I gotta keep, I gotta keep moving. I gotta keep moving. Oh, I gotta keep moving. I gotta keep moving. Yeah. I gotta keep moving. I gotta keep moving. Oh, I gotta keep moving. Yeah. And then maybe maybe questions, which is one of Mickey's solos. So many voices preaching, so many hands keep reaching. Which sound do I listen to? Which hand do I shake? Questions, oh, questions. With every day I'm finding. Another road is winding There's a fork in every road Which one do I take? Um, and then maybe time brings about a change, which I thought had some of the most like incisive kind of social commentary. Somebody started a rumor that socializing with blacks could be fun. So pretty soon as the word got around, every cocktail party had one. Now all the good white folks have gone and left town because it wasn't fun anymore when those fun-colored folks left the cocktail party and bought the house next door. Time brings about a change. Time brings about a change. Time brings about a change. 
and then maybe just one more verse of uh, I Gotta Keep Moving because that's also how the show ends. Yeah, the I Gotta Keep Moving reprise at the end is so good. Yeah. Yeah, I had noted that I really love the song Good Vibrations. My name is Man. And if you think the name he laid on me was Rastus, you're wrong. My name is Man. Lusty, bad, and loud. Stubborn, black, and proud as I wanna be. And Love Power, which I think yeah. Love Power is kind of like a feel-good number. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's all. That's all for that. Yeah. <laughs> we gotta keep moving, moving, moving. Gotta keep moving on. We're a long way from where we've been, but we gotta. Um, okay, do we have bits and pieces? <clears throat> yeah, bits and pieces. Um, so this was, I guess, four years before they started um, having a best revival category for anything. I think that later on we see a separation of best revival and best best revival of a musical and best revival of a play. But at this point, there was just no category at all for either. But I think that like the big revival of the big musical revival of this season and also a show that otherwise we wouldn't be able to talk about was the show Irene, which was at one point the longest run for I think for almost 30 years was the longest running um, show on Broadway. It opened right after the end of World War One in 1919. Irene tells the story of a shop assistant and recent immigrant to New York City's Upper West Side who is introduced to Long Island's high society when she's hired by one of its leading grand dames to help redecorate her home. And I think that there's like this Cinderella aspect where she's like confused for a rich person and, you know, falls in love. But I think what is notable about this was that it was kind of fat fashioned in a way that a lot of pre-Oklahoma refashioned in the way a lot of pre-Oklahoma musicals have been, where I think at least two-thirds of the material of the songs included were not actually in the original show, which I think was also um, some, I think maybe not to this degree, but No No Nanette, which was a big hit the season before and was produced by the same person, kind of had this too, where rather than do like a historically accurate revival of this 
hit of yesteryear they kind of refashioned it and Hugh Wheeler pretty much just rewrote the whole book of the show and I think that it had two interesting premieres in it it was Debbie Reynolds's first time on the Broadway stage she played the leading role of Irene and oh it was the first show that was in the Minskoff theater which eventually, for the like last few months of its run, became the home of Pippin, too. George S. Irving won the Tony for Best Supporting Actor, and it's funny because he was like Celeste Holm. He was also an original cast member of Oklahoma, so... Oh. Um, I think it's good that they, you know, updated it for contemporary sensibilities. And maybe this is a... Uh... Not totally related, but I think it is. But um, recently when I was like comatose on the couch on a Sunday, I was watching TCM and watched um, this insane movie called That's Entertainment, which was made in 1973, um, which which I really recommend, which is sort of like uh, MGM, you know, in the 70s being like, hey, remember when we had all those great musicals in the 50s? And it's, you know, hosted by all of these different stars and the segment that Debbie Reynolds hosts, she's backstage at Irene. Oh, cool. So it all it's all tied together. And I was watching it while uh, we were doing the research for this episode. I was like, cannot get away from 1973. I think that like two funny things to mention about its coverage in the New York Times. In the article about how it was Frankenstein together, the title of the article was called, Will the Real Irene Please Stand Up? <laughs> <laughs> and also the actual just review of the show Clive Barnes notes that he comments that the woman who was sitting next to him while he went to review it the elegant lady sitting next to me remarked to her husband halfway through the first act it is all so refreshing and they don't even take their clothes off (laughs) well I didn't stay for all of the curtain calls but up until that point I up until the time I left they hadn't so like I think it's funny that the people who are producing shows at this time like are being like how you know theaters getting too crazy like how do we like appeal to rich white hairs who want just like a good evening out on the town yeah i mean i think that's sort of a a tension that we're feeling a lot in this season i guess for tim's play corner (laughs) (laughs) the hit of um this season um, and I think that this is actually, you know, in doing the research for this, um, it's rare that the show that maybe rare is a lot wrong word, but maybe it's uncommon that a play will win the Pulitzer Prize and the Tony for best new play. But this season, that championship season, which was kind of like a locker room reunion of like these guys that were all on a winning sports team come kind of come back to their high school it was kind of like uh, regarded as like a hit all around you know it won the tony it won the pulitzer prize it won a bunch of other best play accolades but i think that it was interesting because while i was looking for it and like wondering why I had never heard the name of it before. Um, I read Ben Brantley's review of a 2011 revival of it, and I thought that it offered some like good insight into it. That championship season, which was first staged at the Public Theater before moving to Broadway, made its debut on the eve of the Watergate scandal, and it is steeped in the smell of disgust with red, white, and blue corruption in the age of the Vietnam War. 
That aroma had been hanging thickly over film and theater since at least the mid-1960s. What distinguished season from such antecedents, and may account for its copying both the Pulitzer Prize and the Tony Award for Best Play, was its formal old-fashionedness. Though littered with four-letter words, season has a clean mechanical structure in which revelations arrive like well-run trains at a station. Theatergoers who felt hip enough to be lambasted for being middle-class sellout, but not hip enough for the experimental ambiguities of an all-beat play, could sit back and enjoy American traditionalism being attacked in the traditional style of which they were accustomed. Wow, I think that's a good analysis. I don't really know anything about it, but I was um, I was very moved by how emotional the director was when he was accepting Best Director. Mm-hmm. That sort of made me sit up and pay attention. Uh, they told me I was uh, uh, competing against myself, so I, uh, I'm truly surprised. Um, thank you, thank you, Jason. Thank you, Joe, Joe Papp, and my wonderful cast, everybody. And uh, let me paraphrase the coach, okay? Um, All of you, I carved your names in silver, last forever. Never forget that. I won't. And I promise you, I I accept this as a promise to continue to do good and honest work. Thank you. I liked that, but I this play doesn't really seem that interesting to me. Well, it's interesting because the guy who directed the revival is like a big interpreter of Mamet's work. And I think that, you know, all of these men kind of coming together and like talking like how men talk behind closed doors really like suggested Mamet to me. But it was interesting in that same review, Brantley compared it more to the boys in the band, which I think also kind of does the same thing where, you know, it takes the like element of homo sexuality that I feel like Albie and other playwrights at the time were incorporating into their work in like more ambiguous and experimental ways but like bringing into this social concept into like a very traditional play structure and ultimately it was easy more digestible for people to experience it that way interesting so that one I think two Tonys yeah, the other another big play of the season, and the actor's name is flubbed when he wins the award, was <laughs> Alan Bates, who won for Butley, which is like about a depressed T.S. Eliot scholar who commits suicide by the end of the play. John Lithgow, who I didn't even recognize because I feel like he's looked the same way my whole <laughs> life. <laughs> won Best Performance by a Featured Actor for The Changing Room. And Julie Harris set a new Tony record, I believe, right? Did oh, she, yeah. Did she win her sixth? She, I think this was her, f- maybe her fifth. I think she's Oh, only... yeah. It was her fourth win and her sixth nomination. I love her. She had the most beautiful, like, curtain of shiny blonde hair and a very, very long black dress, which yeah. I loved. She and L- Leora Dana won for one, uh, respectively, the best leading actress and best support featured actress for their appearances in the last of Mrs. Lincoln, which chronicles uh, Mary Todd Lincoln's life after the assassination. Um, and I, a notable Tony nominee, also in best featured actress, was Maya Angelou. Was she there? I don't remember. I feel like in half the categories they show they cut to the nominees and in half of them they didn't. It was very chaotic. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um so here we are at the end of two rounds of Tony's. We did it. So after this, unfortunately, we're going to go on a little break. 
And, you know, we don't want to, but it it's a, it's a labor of love to make this podcast, but it is definitely a lot of labor. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, we have, uh, we got other stuff going on. So taking this break now, hopefully, will mean that we won't have to take another break, um, an, another unplanned break later. So hopefully we're going to come back probably in mid-January, depending on how many episodes we can get banked between now and then. Yes. So do you have any... Um, what are your what are your reflections on on doing this for a full year? After you're doing Tim's play corner, I really <laughs> think that the American Theater Wing needs some help uh, with <laughs> choosing plays. It's just been so interesting to see how many of the plays that we consider like groundbreaking examples of American drama have not been honored by the Tonys. How many people who have totally changed the game have not received a Tony for their contributions. So I think that, you know, that's maybe not the biggest focus of this podcast, but that's something that I've been thinking a lot in my coverage of the plays. I also think that, you know, it speaks to like how hard it is to produce any live theater, but I think that especially play-wise, it's like if you aren't writing something that is totally Aristilian in its dramatic structure, like a general consensus can't be reached that it's like worthy of this award. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, history ends up shaking it all out in the correct way normally, I think, but maybe not. What are you thinking? (laughs) I think for me, well, we talk a lot amongst ourselves about how, you know, we don't like doing the contemporary episodes and doing the historical ones are much more fun, um, which is uh, a bummer because obviously the more modern Tonys are the ones that get more listeners. But um, it's just been interesting for me to really like fill in the gaps in my knowledge. And like, I think, you know, it's funny, we've gotten a little bit of pushback on like, you know, maybe not being as knowledgeable about certain things. But it's like, part of the fun is that like, we're sort of learning as we go. And like, we're not coming into this being like, we know everything. And we're here to tell it to you. Part of the fun is like putting all the pieces together. Like it feels like Broadway history is like a 1000 piece puzzle. And like, before this podcast, I had like, 60% of the pieces filled in and now like every episode we do it's like a little more filled in and like especially doing it in a non-linear way it really um it you know keeps it fresh yeah no I think that there are just so many twists and turns and I think that even to this day while Broadway has changed so much it's like still this totally random combination of things that you know to have a hit or to like have a sensation you really can't predict it and it is sort of in all of our coverage of all the different julie stein shows like (laughs) he like his biographer doesn't take lightly that he had a gambling addiction um and i think that like to be in this business you know so much of it is about kind of having that personality trait of being like well like how about we make a musical of this like call up this person on the phone and get them in here and like let's put it together yeah um It kind of feels like, you know, such a crazy impulse to like want to be in this business. I know. And I really like, I'm really glad that we decided not to do it in chronological order because like, I know from the beginning we were like, it's, we're going to get bored and give up early if we have to start in like, you know, 1949 or whatever. But like, it feels sort of right because not to get too, uh, 
galaxy brain about it, but like we, you know, can only experience time in a linear way, but like we have the privilege of being able to look back on all of this and sort of consume it in whatever order we want. And I feel like it's easier, like you, you draw more interesting conclusions when you are not sort of constrained by linear time, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. No, it totally does. Yeah. And I think it just really made me, I want to tread lightly when saying this, but (laughs) I think that like digging deep and like jumping around through all these decades like I think that there are so many instances that like make me proud of like America and like what America is capable of and like while there have been so many things in American history especially during the 20th century or the second half of the 20th century that you know this is this program kind of focuses on I think that there's so much achievement Um, there's so many cool things that go unnoticed and so many cool things that literally like shake the pillars of like popular culture that I think like have just continued to surprise and amaze me. I totally agree. And so we want to thank every single person who's listened, who has reached out to us, who follows us on our various platforms. It really has meant a lot to us this, you know, this past year. I think we've sort of discussed like what we would consider, you know, success in such like a niche category. And I think we have totally um, achieved everything that we have set out to do. And we're excited to continue growing and to continue, um, I don't know, just keep it, just keep it up. You know, I think we're both super excited to, to keep going and to, to finish this thing. Yeah. Like I think we're not running out of steam. We just need, <laughs> we just need to take a little, you know, pit stop. And buy more books. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's crazy to see how much my theater library has grown in the year um, since we started this. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty wild. But um, I think the podcast has really benefited from, you know, our first episode where we brought like one book a piece. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think we nailed it. So, okay. Yeah. So you can reach us at all the normal places. You can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Rate and review us five stars on iTunes if you like it. And if you don't like it, then please keep it to yourself um, and don't tell (laughs) us or anyone. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, we'll see you in 2020. If, you know, the world society as we know it is still standing in a post-Cats movie world. (laughs) Truly, who knows? Yes. All right, see you in 2020. Bye. Bye.